Good morning, church. Oh, man, that was as bad as first service. You know, first service, you got the hardcore people coming early in the morning when it's raining and cold outside, and they are just determined to be here at 8.30 in the morning. And I said, good morning, church. And they're like, good morning. I said, come on, sound like the committed people you are to be here. Somebody, there we go. <laughs> Thank you. So let's try that again. Good morning, church. Good. Now, God is good? And all the time? All right, now you said it like you mean it. We don't want to lie in church, right? Oh, God is good. Don't make me say it. All right. It's good all the time. Well, this morning, uh, I'm going to do something a little different than, than I normally do uh, through part of the sermon. I'm going to sit down for part of it. And I'm going to sit down in my favorite chair. This is, uh, I'm more comfortable than you guys now. This is, this is nice. This is my favorite chair in the house. And uh, it sits in our living room. And, uh, you know, we have a house where our living room, you know, it's, it's kind of more decorated than used. You know, do you have, I don't know if you have a room like that or not. But, but it's, uh, it's a room where I like to go to read. And it's, it's, it's quiet, especially in the early morning hours when everybody else is sleeping. I can go in the, in the living room and sit in this chair. And uh, this was my father's chair. And when he passed away, I was blessed enough to inherit it. And this was the chair that he sat in. This was the chair that he sat in in early morning hours and late nights. This was the chair that he would sit for long periods of time just reading Scripture and meditating on Scripture, spending time in prayer, uh, praying for me, praying for my sisters and my mother, praying for his church family, praying for those who were his employees, praying many hours in this chair. It was a place of centering. It was a place of sitting where things mattered. And uh, so today I sit in this chair, which I, I think you'll discover why as we go along this morning. But this is a, this is a place, when I sit at home, it's a place that, that helps me center. It's a place that helps me remember, no matter how crazy the world is around me, no matter how out of control things are, when I sit in this chair, I'm reminded of what matters. And I'm kind of brought back home, if you will, to the things that are important, the kingdom of God and people. And so I want to share with you today uh, a passage as we continue the seven signs of Jesus and today we'll be in his fourth sign that John gives us from his gospel. But before we do that, I want to bring your attention to someone's life who maybe won something that maybe some of us would like to win. You know, when we run into problems and we run into trials or uh, maybe in this economy run into financial uh, situations, the lack thereof, wouldn't it just be great if we just got a lot of money to take care of our problems? You know, wouldn't it just be great if, if I just had this much money, then I could get rid of my debt, I could do A, B, and C, you know, whatever that might be. Wouldn't it be great if I could just win the lottery? You know, millions of dollars could solve so many of my problems. Well, many of you probably know that most lottery winners end up not so well. This comes from Texas. The writer of this newspaper says, many have the same dream, finding the sixth 
magical numbers that unlocked the treasure known as the Texas Lottery. Then life would be good. Problems would vanish. There are even the collective fantasies of what to buy and with whom to share this new instant wealth. Well, Billy Bob Harrell Jr. shared those common visions by common souls seeking the salvation of sudden fortune. And in June 1997, he found it. He sat in his easy chair one evening and looked at his quick pick and then at the Sunday newspaper. Harold studied the sequence of numbers again and began to realize the wildest of notions. He and wife Barbara Jean held the only winning ticket to a Lotto Texas jackpot of $31 million. Harold, a deeply religious man, knew he had a godsend from heaven. After being laid off from a couple of jobs in the past few, few years, Billy Bob was now working stocking the electrical supply shelves of a Home Depot in northeast Harris County. He was having a, a hard time providing for himself and Barbara Jean, much less for their three teenage children. Every Wednesday and Saturday, those kids were on his mind when he'd scraped together a few spare dollars to purchase a couple or so lottery tickets. Sometimes he'd use the sequence of his children's birth dates to choose his numbers. Other times he'd let the state's computer do his choosing for him. And that random selection finally paid off, transforming Harold into a millionaire overnight on a warm evening in June. The hard times were history when he arrived in Austin about a month later, when an entourage that included his family, his minister, and his attorneys to collect the first of 25 annual checks for $1.24 million. I'm saying, you know, take your minister. That's the point of this. Take your minister with you. Did I say that out loud? Life had been tough, he said, at the formal lottery ceremony, but he had persevered through the worst of it. I wasn't going to give up, said Harold, then 47. Everyone kept telling me it would, it would, get, uh, it would get better. I didn't realize it would get this much better. In fact, it was great, at least for a while. Harold purchased a ranch. He bought a half dozen homes for himself and other family members. He, his wife, and all the kids got new automobiles. He made large contributions to his church. There it is again. If members of the congregation needed help, Billy Bob was there with cash. Then suddenly, Harold discovered that his life was unraveling almost as quickly as it had come together. He relished the role of being an easy touch, but everyone, it seemed, family, friends, fellow worshipers, and strangers, was putting the touch on him. His spending and his lending spiraled out of control. In February, those tensions splintered his already strained marriage. On May 22, 1999, 20 months after hitting lottery pay dirt, Harold locked himself inside an upstairs bedroom and killed himself. Billy Bob Harold was gone forever. So was the fortune and even the family that had rejoiced with him when the shower of riches had first rained upon him. A schism has widened between the children and grandparents who cannot even agree on whether Billy Bob took his own life. And an intra-family war looms over the remnants of the fortune, which may not even be enough to pay estate taxes. Perhaps the only thing not in dispute about his life and death is the jarring impact of money. It may not have caused his problems, but it certainly didn't solve them. Shortly before his death, 
Harold confided to a financial advisor. He said, winning the lottery is the worst thing that ever happened to me. Now, you know, I think a lot of us here would probably confess that maybe we wouldn't be a lot different from Harold. And that we often think that there's a, there's a solution somewhere there, quick, to fix a problem. And that we know what that solution is. It just, we just need more of this. We just need more. What are you, you fill in the blank. It could be money. It could be more food. It could be more things. It could be a better job. It could be whatever it is. If I just had that, then, then life will finally come together. But our, our passage today will tell us otherwise. It's in John chapter 6, verses 1 through 15. It's a passage that I'm, I'm guessing most of us are pretty familiar with. It's a popular children's story. It's, um, it's told in all four of the Gospels in the Bible. The story of Jesus providing food. And John writes, as he gives us another signpost to point to Jesus, he says, Sometime after this, Jesus crossed to the far shore of the Sea of Galilee, that is the Sea of Tiberias, and a great crowd of people followed him because they saw the miraculous signs he had performed on the sick. And then Jesus went up on a mountainside and sat down with his disciples. The Jewish Passover feast was near. And when Jesus looked up and saw a great crowd coming toward him, he said to Philip, Where shall we buy bread for these people to eat? He asked this only to test him, for he had already had in mind what he was going to do. And Philip answered him, eight months' wages would not buy enough bread for each one to have a bite. Another of his disciples, Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, spoke up, here's a boy with five small barley loaves and two small fish, but how far will they go among so many? And Jesus said, have the people sit down. There was plenty of grass in that place, and the men sat down, about 5,000 of them. Jesus then took the loaves, gave thanks, and distributed to those who were seated as much as they wanted. He did the same with the fish. And when they had all had enough to eat, he said to his disciples, Gather the pieces that are left over. Let nothing be wasted. So they gathered them and filled twelve baskets with the pieces of the five barley loaves left over by those who had eaten. After the people saw the miraculous sign that Jesus did, they began to say, Surely, surely this is the prophet who is to come into the world. And Jesus, knowing that they intended to come and make him king by force, withdrew again to a mountain by himself. Great story. I can remember one of the, one of the few things that I remember so vividly growing up in the church is that Sabbath when they told us the story of Jesus, Jesus feeding the 5,000. You know why I remember? Because they gave me two gummy fish and five crackers. <laughs> I love it when there's application directly, you know, like that. And, I, and I, I was like, yes, Jesus has provided. I have something to eat during the worship service. This is good. And so I took my two gummy fish and my five crackers to church and was satisfied all through the sermon that was boring, right? <laughs> and so... We know these stories, and we, and we can take plenty of passages. We can take plenty of, of, of applications to this and say, oh, yes, it's a great story. We can say God provides. He does provide. 
He will provide. We could, we could say just like the little boy, if we just bring him our, our loaves and our fish, it may not be anything, but what can God do with it? He can do amazing things with it. What can he do with a piece of bread? There's, there's, there was probably 15,000 people there when you count the women and children. And what did he do with five loaves and two fish? He fed them all. He did, as our children's choir said, unbelievable, inconceivable, supernatural, mysterious things. Wonderful things. But I'm going to suggest to you today that while those applications are good, I'm going to suggest to you today that John has a different intent when he writes about this sign. Because remember, John doesn't call anything a miracle in his book. He calls them signs. Signs to point to believing in Jesus. And so John writes with intentionality. He gives us clues in this, in this narrative to point us to the sufficiency of Jesus and Jesus alone. I love, I love how, how he brings out the interpersonal with Philip and Jesus. You know, I mean, could you just picture, I sat there this week just trying to put myself in the scene and, and just picturing Jesus and Philip talking to each other. And you know, have you ever done this before? You might be with a child or, or a friend and, 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 and you're asking them a question, knowing what you're intending and, and you've got that look in your eyes, kind of like, you know, the answer is, without giving them the answer, it's like, Philip, you know, he says, he says in verse 5, when Jesus looked up and saw a great crowd coming toward him, he said to Philip, so Philip, where shall we buy bread for these people to eat? What do you think? Can you see that sparkle in Jesus' eye? Knowing what he was intending to do. Philip, so what do you think? How on earth are we going to feed all these people? You know, he brings this problem, and, and, and Philip Probably not unlike me when I was in school, you hated to be called on. You know, the teacher, so John, give us the answer for this. Oh, man, you just called on me. You made Philip with all the other disciples. You know, I don't want to get it wrong. I don't, what do I do? You know, Philip, how are we going to buy bread for these people to eat? And then, and then Philip answers in, in the natural way. Lord, eight months' wages would not be enough bread for each one to have a bite. It's impossible. You see, Jesus, Jesus was thinking kingdom level. And Philip was thinking earthly level. Jesus was always trying to get people to think in the kingdom realm of things. And, and so often, we as human beings, we keep thinking earthly level. Remember, remember Jesus came. His kingdom said that it was not of this world. And even John later, at the bottom of this passage, they knew, the people knew that surely this is the prophet who is to come into the world. And so Jesus was always trying to remind people and to teach people about the kingdom that is not of this world, but that can live in this world through human beings. And so Jesus is there. Come on, come on, Philip. Let me, let me show you. Let me show you something. And so John gives all these, these symbols. He says, notice, notice in verse 3, it says, Jesus went up on a mountainside and sat down with his disciples. It wasn't really a mountainside. It was more like a hillside. But John has an intention here. He's trying to point the readers to, to think of who Jesus is. Who can you think of in the history of the Old Testament that went up to a mountain and listened to God? Moses. And so John's saying, yeah, you know, you know Moses? Remember 
Remember that prophet who taught you the things of God? And then in Deuteronomy chapter 18, it talks about a prophet who's going to come after Moses, who's going to bring the people into freedom. And so John is giving these pointers. Remember the mountainside? Well, well, Jesus is going up to this mountainside. In verse 4, the Jewish Passover feast was near. A big part of Passover was for the people to remember how God had led them out of captivity to the promised land, through the wilderness. And what did he do when they were in the wilderness? How did he feed them? Manna. Bread from heaven. So when people practice Passover, they, they remember God provided in the wilderness. He provided bread from heaven. And he is also the, the lamb of God who will come to take away the sins of the world, which John says in the earlier part of his book. And so John is being very intentional. Look at the clues. Jesus, the prophet, up the mountainside during the Passover time. And he goes on to give more clues. In verse 12, Remember when the manna was to be collected every, every day? They weren't to let it sit. They were to gather it all. And so Jesus tells his disciples, don't leave anything. Pick it all up. Don't let it go to waste. In verse 14, John says, after the people saw the miraculous sign that Jesus did, they began to say, surely this is the prophet who is to come into the world. And so they saw Jesus. Yes, this is the one. This is the Messiah. It says they wanted to make him king. They recognized he's the one. But why did they want to make him king? Jesus says later, because he fed their stomachs. Because he gave him bread. Because in their eyes, he was the king of bread. He could provide for you. But Jesus wanted them to see why he'd really come. Yes, Jesus says in other parts of Scripture, don't worry about what you're going to wear. Don't worry about what you're going to eat. Seek first the kingdom and his righteousness, and everything will be added unto you. You'll be taken care of. But even deeper than that, more than food, more than money, more than clothes, more than a job, more than anything else, Jesus is going to point us to what really matters. I'm going to sit back in my chair this morning, and uh, I'm going to ask... Brother Arwen to bring the lights down. And uh, I'm going to do something this morning that, that I don't do a lot of, and that's read to you for a while. And, but I feel that as, as a pastor, as a preacher, the most important words I can ever, ever share with you are the words of our Master and our Savior. The words of Jesus Christ himself. And so, I want to read to you the words that Jesus spoke in the remainder of John chapter 6 about what this sign meant. About what it really meant for his listeners, for those who were there, and for those of us who are listening today. Listen to the words of Jesus. I tell you the truth. You are looking for me not because you saw miraculous signs, but because you ate the loaves and had your fill. Do not work for food that spoils, but for food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give you. On Him, God the Father has placed His seal of approval. Then they asked him, 
What must we do to do the works of God that he requires? Jesus answered, The work of God is this, to believe in the one he has sent. So they asked him, What miraculous sign then will you give that we may see it and believe you? What will you do? Our forefathers ate the manna in the desert. As it is written, he gave them bread from heaven to eat. But Jesus said to them, I tell you the truth. It is not Moses who has given you the bread from heaven, but it is my Father who gives you the true bread from heaven. For the bread of God is he who comes down from heaven and gives life to this world. Sir, they said, from now on, give us this bread. Then Jesus declared, I am the bread of life. He who comes to me will never go hungry. And he who believes in me will never be thirsty. But as I told you, you have seen me, and still you do not believe. Jesus said, the bread of God is he who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. I love how Jesus said that because he said the bread of life is he, not the bread of life is that which comes down from heaven. Jesus said, I am the bread of life. It's like he was saying, it's all about me. Everything you need in this life at your deepest heart, core level is me, not the food, not the money, not the things, not the job, not the position, but me. To remind you that John said in John 1 verse 14, the word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. We have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only who came from the Father, full of grace and truth. I can hear the words of one of my mentors still ringing in my head, and it will for the rest of my life. Christianity is about a who and not a what. It's not about doctrines. It's not about all the things that denominations hold up. It's about Jesus Christ and a relationship with God at a heart level knowing and experience and feasting on Jesus. Christ is life. Apart from Christ, there is no life. In Christ, Jesus says, there is abundant life. Jesus goes on and he says, For my Father's will is that everyone who looks to the Son and believes in him shall have eternal life, and I will raise him up at the last day. At this the Jews began to grumble, They grumbled about him because he said, I am the bread that came down from heaven. They said, is this not Jesus, the son of Joseph, whose father and mother we know? How can he now say, I came down from heaven? Jesus said, stop grumbling among yourselves. No one can come to me unless the father who sent me draws him and I will raise him up at the last day. It is written in the prophets, they will all be taught by God. Everyone who listens to the father and learns from him comes to me. No one has seen the Father except the one who is from God. Only he has seen the Father. I tell you the truth. He who believes has everlasting life. I am 
the bread of life. Your forefathers ate the man in the desert, yet they died. But here is the bread that comes down from heaven, which a man may eat and not die. I am the living bread that came down from heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. This bread is my flesh, which I will give for the life of the world. Then the Jews began to argue sharply among themselves, How can this man give us his flesh to eat? Jesus said to them, I tell you the truth. Unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. Whoever eats my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise him up at the last day. For my flesh is real food, and my blood is real drink. Whoever eats my flesh and drinks my blood abides in me, remains in me, and I in him. Just as the Father, the living Father, sent me, and I live because of the Father, so the one who feeds on me will live because of me. This is the bread that came down from heaven. Your forefathers ate manna and died, but he who feeds on this bread will live forever. I know it sounds strange when Jesus says, whoever eats my flesh and drinks my blood. But remember that, that John said, the word became what? Flesh. John is using this word to remind us that God came down to us in the person of Jesus Christ. And anyone who bases his life on Jesus and his kingdom and the word that he speaks and takes his words to heart and says, Jesus, I'm going to trust you with the words that you say, and so I'm going to obey you because I believe in your word is life. You abide in Jesus, and you are satisfied and you are filled. It's like eating his flesh, taking him into our being through his word and in his presence. I am the living bread that came down from heaven, Jesus said. This bread is my flesh, which I give for the life of the world. Back in August, I, I made a statement just kind of in passing. But today I want to mention it again because I think it's essential to what Jesus is saying to us. It's a simple, simple statement, and it is this. Jesus not only came to give his life for us, but to give his life to us. He came and died for us. He gave his life for us so that we could be forgiven, so we could be cleansed from our sin. But that's half of the gospel. The other half is that Jesus came to give his life to us, that through the presence of the Holy Spirit that he gives to us, he brings his life into us, and God lives within us. And not only are we forgiven from sin, but by the power of his grace, which he came full of, we experience transformation. We experience change in character. We experience healing at the heart level, at the emotional level, at the mental level. God gave his life to us, and he called it bread. And as we take Jesus Christ into our life and base our life on his reality every day, he lives within us, he abides within us, and we are fed, and we are satisfied. John goes on to write, On hearing it, many of his disciples said, This is a hard teaching. Who can accept it? Aware that his disciples were grumbling about this, Jesus said to them, Does this offend you? 
What if you see the Son of Man ascend to where he was before? The Spirit gives life. The flesh counts for nothing. The words I have spoken to you are spirit, and they are life. From this time, many of his disciples turned back and no longer followed him. You do not want to leave too, do you? Jesus asked the twelve. Simon Peter answered him, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. And we believe and know that you are the Holy One of God. You see, this sign, this miracle is wonderful. And Jesus did a miraculous thing in providing bread. But Jesus even said, as you heard, are you following me because your stomachs were filled? This isn't what it's about. It's about me. It's about feeding on me in your life. All of us go through life chasing chairs to sit down in. It could be a job, it could be a career, it could be achievements, it could be enough money, it could be and we go around looking for chairs to just that will center us. And Jesus says, "The only chair you are meant to sit in is my kingdom. It's me, Jesus Christ." No matter what's going on in our lives, good, bad, ugly, crazy, calm, it's important for us to sit in the chair of sanity called Jesus Christ. To sit and say, I don't need to feast on anything else but Jesus. To feast on his words. And listening, I was listening to one of my mentors from a distance, Dallas Willard. And he was talking about helping people who, who may not believe that Jesus is God. And how do, how do we help them learn to understand that Jesus is God? And this is what he said, simple yet profound. He said, you know what? Just challenge them. Give them a challenge. Ask them for like a month or two just to take the words of Jesus and, and just apply those to their life, to, to live by what Jesus says, and, and then for them to see what happens in their life. Because if Jesus is who he said he is, then his words are what they said they were. They are life. And they are bread, true bread for the human heart. And so even if I may doubt Jesus, if I may doubt the kingdom of God, I can feed on his word, and there will always be fruit. There will always be profound meaning in my life because of the bread of God in Jesus Christ. Jesus reminds us today that he and he alone is the only staple and the sustenance for the human being. John said in chapter 1, verse 10 through 13, and I want to read it from the message translation. John says, He was in the world, and the world was there through him, and yet the world didn't even notice. He came to his own people, but they didn't want him. But whoever did want him, who believed he was, who he claimed, and would do what he said, he made to be their true selves, their child of God's selves, these are the God-begotten, not blood-begotten, not flesh-begotten, not sex-begotten, but God-begotten. I was listening to an interview this week on a Sunday morning show. They were interviewing someone you might know. His name was Herb Alpert, a famous trumpet player. They talked about how he got a start and recorded lots of music, and then he 
He founded a record company some of you may have heard of called A&M Records. And when he started that company, he signed a lot of people who became very, very famous. One of the people that he signed to a record contract was a, a wonderful young woman named Karen Carpenter. And when the person interviewing him brought up her name, Herb became speechless. And tears began to fall from his eyes. And the person interviewing said, what are you feeling? What are you thinking? Why, why the tears? When he finally got up enough strength to say something, he said, Karen was such a beautiful, beautiful person. She died at the age of 32 from anorexia. And the sad part was, she never could grasp and understand how special she was. That she had it. She had such a gift and she was such a beautiful human being and she could not understand that and eventually starved herself to death. You see, in this world, we have thousands, thousands of things being said to us. And Jesus came. He did all these miracles, but Jesus came to let you know how special you are. That there isn't, there isn't anything he came to this earth to save but you and I. He came here to save people, to save his beloved creatures. If we believe in him, he gives us the right to be sons and daughters of God. He says himself that he will be everything we need. Can we believe him? Can we trust Jesus that he will really be everything we need? I think the cross tells us that we can. I love this chair. It reminds me of who I am. It reminds me that I belong in the kingdom of God. It reminds me that Jesus, when I sit in this chair, it reminds me that the only thing that matters in this life is Jesus and his kingdom and everybody else in the world that Jesus wants in his kingdom. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, give us the grace to trust you and to know that the words you say are the only truth this world knows. Give us the grace to believe so much so that we choose to feast on you. And not on all the other things that don't satisfy. Not on all the other things that, that keep us going for more. Because, Lord, only you, just as the sign you gave when you fed those people, John said, and they were filled. Lord, you did that sign to point to yourself and to remind us that only you can fill us. Only you can satisfy us. So, Lord, give us the grace, as you came full of grace and truth, to keep us feasting on you, hungry for you, filled with you. Take a moment now in silent prayer to talk to the bread of life, the one who has come to fill your soul.
precious cornerstone, sure foundation. You are faithful to the end. We are waiting on you, Jesus. We believe your Precious cornerstone, sure foundation, you are faithful to the end. We are waiting on you, Jesus. We The glory of your name be the passion of the church. Let the righteousness of God be a holy flame that burns. Let the saving love of Christ be the measure of our lives. We believe you're all. church let the righteousness of god be a holy flame that burns let the saving love of christ be the measure of our lives we believe you're all to us let the glory of your name be the passion church let the righteousness of god be a holy flame that burns let the saving love of christ be the measure of our lives we believe you're all to us you're all
He is all. And to the church, to you and I, He is everything. And the only thing that satisfies the soul of the church is Jesus Himself. May we go this week feasting on Jesus, enjoying His presence, taking His words to heart and to mind and in our steps and in our hands and in so doing, be filled and satisfied. God bless you.